wherever there is hostility and alienation and enmity, there is the need for reconciliation. And all of those things are part of life in a fallen world. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled, He Himself is Our Peace. Tom has part three for you on today's broadcast. God the Father sent His Son, Christ Jesus, to bear the sins of all who would ever repent and believe in Him. Christ Jesus reconciles each sinner to God the Father. Now, to reconcile means to restore harmony, a settling of hostilities. True reconciliation, though, be it among nations or individuals, can sometimes take a long time, given the walls of separation that exist in some places. But as you'll discover today, a wall of separation that's infinitely larger than any man-made wall has already been broken down by Jesus. And if you repent and turn to Him, Christ did it for you. Open your Bible now as we join our teacher with today's message on The Word Unleashed. How challenging and how difficult it must have been to be a part of those small, struggling churches in the first century. Of course, in one sense, there was this excitement, there was an energy as the church was being born, as the Spirit of God was moving in a great way, but it had many challenges as well. That's what the New Testament describes. That's why we have these letters that describe so many struggles and issues. Because the people in those small struggling assemblies were a most unusual assortment of people. Most of them had been strangers, and many of them had been settled enemies and had hated each other their entire lives and generations of their families had hated generations of the families of the others who were there. And then suddenly, with the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the reception of the gospel, within days or weeks, these different people are brought together and find themselves now together in worship, together in fellowship, together in the most spiritually intimate of situations. It's easy for us, with some 2,000 years distance, to say, well, what's so hard about that? I mean, the truly redeemed of Christ can, can get along with each other. I think it's really impossible for us to fully appreciate what it was like, how difficult it was. What happened in the first century church is tantamount to a church today that is made up of left-wing liberals and right-wing conservatives. Picture a church with a redeemed Israeli cabinet and the Saudi royal family. People from both ends of the social extremes. Picture Christian political activists sitting alongside redeemed homosexuals and abortion doctors. Or imagine loyal patriots mixing with recent terrorists. And you have some picture of what the early church was like. If we were to go back to the book of Acts and examine the initial membership of the church in Ephesus, that's the kind of membership we would see. 
In this church, there were many Jews who had come to embrace Jesus as their Messiah from the ministry of Paul for three months in the synagogue there in Ephesus. He also administered, you remember, to those disciples of John the Baptist, committed Jews who had expressed repentance at John's preaching but had not heard about Christ that he had come. There were also many pagans in the church in Ephesus, Gentiles, those who were formerly into the occult so deeply, so deeply into the occult that when they sold, excuse me, when they burned all of the resources they had accumulated, the cost, the value of those resources is estimated to be 250 years of a laborer's wages. And these distinct groups had never before interacted, ever. But suddenly, the Apostle Paul comes to town, and he shares the gospel, and the Spirit of God works in their hearts, and they recognize Jesus for who He is, and they repent, and they are all connected to Christ. And consequently, they are connected to each other. So you can understand why 10 years after founding this church, Paul is still concerned about helping them fit together. So in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul reminds them not only of their individual salvation in the first 10 verses, but in the second half of chapter 2, he explains to them that Christ's work brought them together with the rest of the people of God, regardless of their differences. In fact, I've already told you the theme of this paragraph that begins in verse 11 and runs down through the end of the chapter is this. All Christians, regardless of their backgrounds, are united together with God and with each other in the church through the work of Jesus Christ. Paul develops that theme in three distinct sections. The first section, verses 11 through 13, describe the reality of the union that exists. Last week, we just introduced the second section, verses 14 to 18, the reason for the union, the reason for this connection between us and God and between us and each other. Let me read this section to you again. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, "...for He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near." For through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. This section is really the heart and soul of the entire letter. These five verses are all about one very important biblical concept, and that's the concept of reconciliation. The word itself occurs down in verse 16, but the concept of reconciliation permeates every word of this entire paragraph. What creates the need for reconciliation? Who needs to be reconciled? Wherever there is hostility and alienation and enmity, there is the need for reconciliation. And all of those things are part of life in a fallen world. There is, because of the fall, alienation and hostility between man and God, and there is also alienation and hostility between men and women. We 
need desperately to be reconciled. And the wonderful thing about what Christ has done is that He brings that reconciliation both vertically with God and horizontally with others. As we saw, verses 11 through 13 describe the reality of that reconciliation, the reality of the union, and verses 14 to 18 describe the reason the reasons that lie behind the union. What are the reasons? What caused our reconciliation with God and with each other? Well, in verses 14 to 18, Paul offers two basic causes, two basic reasons. The first reason he offers is in verses 14 to 16, the ministry of Christ, which we'll look at together today. The second reason he offers is in verses 17 and 18, the message of Christ. Now, the focus of verses 14 to 16 then is on the ministry of Christ, what Christ has done. And it's summarized in the statement that begins verse 14, for He Himself is our peace. That simple statement invites an important question. If He Himself is our peace, then what exactly did Jesus do to gain that peace or to become that peace or to procure peace for us? What was the ministry of Christ? And Paul here tells us what his ministry was in three parallel Greek participles. In our English text, they're translated at the middle of verse 14 as made. The end of verse 14, broke down. And the beginning of verse 15, abolishing. These three participles explain how Christ became our peace, how He has reconciled us to God, and how He's reconciled us to each other. Let's look at them together. The first participle, in the middle of verse 14, He made both groups into one. Literally, the Greek text says, He has made both things into one thing. He has made both things into one thing. This is the peace Christ made. He made both things, that is groups, as the New American Standard has translated. It's a good good idea of what the text means. He made both groups into one group. So, what groups? He's not talking here about all Jews and all Gentiles. Open your paper today and you will see that there is ongoing hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Well, notice what he says, the two he's made into one. The two groups are Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. He made those Christians from different backgrounds into one. How did he do that? Well, the second participle explains how he made them one. Notice the second participle at the end of verse 14 and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. This is how Christ made the two groups into one. He broke down the barrier that separated them. Now, this is an absolutely fascinating expression. Literally, we could translate it, he broke down the barrier formed by the dividing wall. Now, it's clear that Paul is talking here about that sort of metaphorical animosity that separated Jews and Gentiles. But to illustrate what that spiritual separation was like, Paul uses an expression taken from the physical temple in Jerusalem. I reminded you last week that 
There was this massive curtain in the temple that hung between the holy place and the holy of holies that served as a constant reminder of the barrier between us and God, between all men and God. And when Jesus died, he ripped that curtain in two. Well, there were other barriers at the temple, and they just as profoundly served as a reminder of the division, not between us and God, but between us and others. Let me see if I can give you a little tour of Herod's temple. It's so important that you understand this to get what Paul is saying here. Herod, for many years, reconstructed the paltry little second temple that was built after the Israelites returned from the Babylonian captivity. And Herod rebuilt it in a massive way. He started by creating a huge raised platform. You'll hear it called the Temple Mount. It's not really a mountain, it's more a hill that has been leveled. Dirt has been scraped and, and leveled until it provides a base for building buildings. So picture this huge raised platform of earth covered with stone. That is the Temple Mount. Josephus describes that Temple Hill, that raised platform, of about 400 yards by 330 yards. It was massive. 35 acres, approximately, of space was the temple area on which the buildings were constructed. The chief focal point of that massive temple mount, that temple hill, that raised platform, the chief focal point was in the center near the back. That's where the temple proper stood, the building that was the temple itself. It was at the front, 50 yards high by 50 yards wide, a massive structure. If you walked into that structure, you would come into what was called the holy place. And near the back of that huge building would be a small room, only 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet, a perfect cube near the back, separated by a massive curtain. That was the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the presence of God manifested himself. So if you were to then be a priest and you were allowed to be in the holy place serving God, walk with me for a moment from the holy place inside that structure at the back of the temple mount, walk out to the porch of that temple. From the porch, looking out over the rest of the temple mount, you would have seen a cascading, descending set of courtyards. They would have flowed down from where you were standing. From the porch of the holy place, there were 12 steps leading down to where the brazen altar was, where the bronze altar was, and that area called the court of the priests. This is an area that only the priests could go. This is where the slaughter area for the animals was. This is where the animals were slain and where their corpses were burned there in fire on the altar. It was called the court of the priests because only the priests could go there. At the edge of that court, there was an 18-inch stone wall, just a tiny little wall, but a reminder that only the priests could enter that court. Just outside of that 18-inch wall was another court called the Court of Israel. This is where, if you were a Jewish male, you could come. So you could come very close to where all of the sacrifices were made, to where the altar was, to where the priests were, but you could not enter. That stone wall reminded you there was a barrier between you and the role the priests had. If you then stood in the court of Israel, that court surrounding the court of 
the priests, and remember those were on the same level. There was just that tiny little stone wall separating them. If you were to stand where all the Jewish males could come and look down, you would come to 15 more steps. If you stepped down those 15 steps, you would come to that huge square called the Court of the Women. This was as far as rabbinical law allowed women to come. Later, there, would have, there were balconies built where they could go up and look down on the area of the court of the priest and watch what was happening. But they could not enter. They could not come up those 15 steps into the court of Israel where the men could, nor certainly into the court of the priests. Now, from the women's court, you would descend another five steps to a level area, a kind of landing. Picture a small landing that encompassed the entire temple proper. And on that landing was a wall, a stone wall. That's all that was on the landing, all the way around the temple. That stone wall, we're told, varies somewhere between three feet high and five feet high. The records differ on its height. But they both agree to its presence, and it encompassed the entire temple proper. Now, after that landing with its wall, there were 14 more steps. And only after you'd gone down those steps did you reach the area called the Court of the Gentiles. That's as far as a non-Jewish person could ever go. But I want you in your mind, as we take our little tour here, I want you to go back up from the Court of the Gentiles, back up those 14 steps to that little landing with its strange wall. It's a very important wall. On that three to five foot stone barricade that encircled the entire temple building, there were stone slabs placed at regular intervals. And on those slabs was engraved a terrible warning. Several of those engraved signs have been discovered, and one entire slab was discovered back in 1871 and is now on display in the museum in Istanbul, Turkey. This is how it reads. And these signs were at regular intervals all the way around the temple. On that landing, on that three to five foot wall, this is what they said. No Gentile is to enter within the balustrade and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will render himself liable to the death penalty, which will inevitably follow. You see, the Romans had allowed the Jewish leadership to actually carry out the death penalty on any Gentile who passed that wall. That was the dividing wall. That was the place that you could not go past, even if you were a devout Gentile, even if you were a proselyte, even if you did everything Jewish people did, you couldn't go past that wall with, and that landing. It's clear that Paul had that wall in mind when he wrote that Christ had broken down the barrier of the dividing wall. And this is a very important thing to understand. Remember where Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians from? He wrote it from Rome. He wrote it from house arrest in Rome. And here's what's remarkable. The reason Paul was in jail in Rome was because of that wall and because of that sign, because of that warning. It was about three years before Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus that Paul had gone to Jerusalem with offerings that had been collected in Gentile churches in Asia Minor, including the church in Ephesus. And he'd taken these offerings to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. 
But when he got to Jerusalem, Paul discovered there were problems between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. Turn back to Acts 21. I want to show you this. Acts 21. This is so important because this is what informs what we're studying in Ephesians. Ephesians takes its cues from this historical context. Acts 21, verse 17. Around Pentecost, we arrived in Jerusalem, Luke writes. The brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, that's the half-brother of Christ, and all the elders were present. After he'd greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Now understand, these are true Jewish brothers. They are not Judaizers. That is, they are not those who believe you have to do these things in order to earn your salvation. Instead, they are simply Jews and until the book of Hebrews was written, Jews in the New Testament continued to practice the ceremonial law spelled out in, Mo in Moses' time. And so they're zealous for the law, verse 21. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews, Paul, who are among the Gentiles, to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Again, we're talking about Jewish believers. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, here's the plan. Do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them. Stop there. Now, why does Paul need to be purified? Well, in the rabbinical literature, if you were a Jewish male and you traveled into Gentile countries, which Paul has been doing as a missionary for some time, you rendered yourself ceremonially unclean. So there was a seven-day purification process that you had to go through. Purify yourself along with them, verse 24, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. This was part of the process. And by paying their expenses to do this for the sacrifice and the other things that would be offered, Paul was showing his piety, that he really was interested in the Mosaic law and in the rabbinical rules. He was still a practicing Jew. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from fornication. These were things all connected to idolatry. The last word there, fornication, probably doesn't mean the broadest scope of fornication, that's forbidden for Jew and Gentile, probably is referring to close intermarriage with close family members, as was practiced among the Gentiles, but would have been a great offense to the Jewish believers. So, Paul agrees. Verse 26, he took the men the next day, purifying himself along with them. He went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Here's how the process went. You went in on the first day, you let them know what you were going to do, you prepared for the sacrifice, you were also supposed to come back on the third day of the seven, and on the seventh day, back to the temple, and this was part of the process of this purification. So Paul has agreed to do it, and he follows through with it. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost over, this is probably the seventh day 
when he had to go back to the temple. This was the rule. The Jews from Asia, probably from Ephesus, as we'll see in a moment, upon seeing him in the temple, these are unbelieving Jews now, seeing Paul in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd. They laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Here was the heart of the accusation. Paul has defiled the temple because he has brought Gentiles past the wall. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his current series, He Himself is Our Peace. Tom will bring you part four on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. And we'd love it if you'd join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.